Hi, Cornerstone. Welcome again uh, to our weekend services uh, online here at the Cornerstone. We pray that you've been blessed by uh, this season of messages that are coming to you online. And uh, this weekend, I want to talk to you about the subject of the Exodus and the wilderness. You know, when you read the first five books of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy, you get really an overarching account of um, the early parts of the formation of the nation of Israel. It's a pretty extensive narrative and it begins with uh, God's creation and how God created the world. And then you know, goes on to tell us about the, God's initiative to establish a, uh, a nation, Israel, uh, by beginning to call by by beginning this process through the calling out of Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. I mean, the account tells us how Israel was born, how they entered Egypt and became slaves, and then how the Lord delivered them out of slavery, brought them all the way through the wilderness, through Mount Sinai, where He makes a covenant with them and then finally takes them to the very threshold uh, of crossing over into the promised land. And that's where Deuteronomy ends. Now, it's easy for us to look at these five books of the Bible in a very linear, chronological fashion. And what this means is that we see all these events as something that was happening chronologically from one point to the next, okay? Um, you know, perhaps from point A to point B to C to D and then to E. Now, but I want to suggest to you that this is not the only way for us to read or to look at Genesis uh, to Deuteronomy. But in fact, you know, these first five books of the Bible can more accurately be seen to contain a chiastic structure. What a chiastic structure is, is that it's a mirror image symmetry. In other words, instead of an A, B, C, D, E account, what we have is we have an A, B, C, B, A kind of a structure. And what is important to note is that uh, there is an important climax or pivot point right in the middle of these accounts. And in this case, the apex of the account takes place in Mount Sinai, where God adopts the nation of Israel as His own, and in so doing, He establishes a covenant with the nation and proceeded to give them the laws that we are now familiar with and we associate with the Old Covenant. Now, if you look at these five books, you'll see this uh, um, chiastic structure beginning at Genesis, and Genesis talks about the prehistory, the past of Israel. And then Exodus comes and it tells us about uh, Israel's journey from Egypt all the way to Sinai. Notice that that begins with a crossing of a sea where God dries the water of the Red Sea. Now then it comes to the pinnacle or the apex or the pivot point which is in Leviticus at Mount Sinai. And then Numbers is about the journey from Mount Sinai all the way to the Jordan. And of course, Deuteronomy is uh, Moses rehearsing to Israel what they're supposed to do when they come into the Promised Land. In other words, it's talking about the future of Israel. So there you see a very clear uh, mirror image symmetry. Now for this weekend, what I want to do is I want to focus on two books. I want to focus on the book of Exodus as well as the book of Numbers. Incidentally, the book of Numbers, uh, while it is so named in the English Bible as Numbers, and appropriately so because there is a census that's taken in the book, but in the Hebrew Bible, it is not called Numbers, but it is called the Bemidbar, which literally translates to in the wilderness because that contains the account of Israel when they were in the wilderness. Uh, what I want to do is I want to draw for us comparisons for us between Israel during their exodus from Egypt and slavery and Israel during their time in the wilderness. 
for starters, what you would like to observe in this chiastic structure or mirror image symmetry that we've pointed out is that in both these books, the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, you'll notice that they contain very similar events that happen. Okay, it is almost as though what happened in Exodus is repeated again in the book of Numbers. I want to give you a list of, uh, um, you know, of these similarities. This is by no means exhaustive. In fact, it is a fairly limited list. And if you read these two books carefully, you'll find a lot of other similarities. Again, we want to encourage you to download our Church Scribe app, and our slides are available there. I promise you it will be a lot easier to follow the message if you have the slides with you. Now, here's a couple of similarities between, uh, that of events that happened in these two books, in the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers. You know, um, there was victory that Israel had over um, her opponents. The first in Exodus, they had victory over Egypt, and in Numbers, they had victory over Sehon and Ok. Um, in both books, there were songs of victory that were sung. In both books, the children of Israel uh, complained against the Lord. In both books, there were accounts or incidents that involved manna and quail, both in Numbers as well as in Exodus. In both books, God brought forth water you know, to supply the needs of the children of Israel from a rock. And in both instances, in Exodus, there was an idolatry that happened. And, you know, in Numbers, there was another incident of idolatry. Now, in both books, uh, Moses had to intercede for the nation of Israel twice. Once in Exodus and once in Numbers, God literally offered to restart the nation of Israel with Moses. And Moses had to, you know, said, uh, Moses said no, and he had to intercede on behalf of the nation of Israel. And of course, in both books, there were uh, each a census that was taken and that was recorded for us in these books. Now, while we see these similarities of events, we need to also notice that there are very clear differences between these similarities that we observe. One of the very clear distinctions is that in the book of Exodus, whenever Israel sinned or complained or they had committed some kind of wrong, they were not punished for their infractions. They were not. But once you come to Numbers, the punishment on Israel were uh, immediate and oftentimes quite severe. Let me give you a couple of uh, simple examples. Um, just, just take Exodus 16, for example. The children of Israel complained about food and God provided manna in the morning and he, then he provided quail in the evening and that was it. They needed food, they complained and God provided manna and quail. Just a side note of interest, notice that God provided only two meals for the children of Israel in the wilderness, okay? Just lunch and dinner. So by the way, I just want you to know that intermittent fasting is biblical, okay? Um, interesting note aside, you will notice also that this thing happened again in the book of Numbers, and, uh, and this is in Numbers 11. But you see, in Numbers, we, we observe a very different outcome. The people, again, complained about food. They wanted fish, leeks, cucumber, onions, garlic. This time, though, the Lord struck them with a very great plate. The death count, the death uh, you know, uh, tally was so high, was so great, that they literally changed the name of that place and they called it a graveyard. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, but the name they gave was Kibroth Hatava'ah or graves of, of craving. In other words, there were so many people that died there, they just renamed the place a graveyard. Now, here's another example. Exodus 32, the children of Israel committed idolatry with the golden calf that Aaron made. Moses comes down from the mountain. He's got the two tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments. He sees the situation. He breaks the stone. He's so angry, and he intervenes in the situation. 
And in the process, he executes, Moses executed judgment on the people. 3,000 men were slain by Moses and by the tribe of Levi, right? And so it was Moses who executed the judgment. In Numbers 25, again, the children of Israel committed idolatry with the people of Moab, and they bowed down to Baal. Now again, Moses was told to hang the offenders. So both incidents, Moses executed judgment. But on top of that, in the account in Numbers, there was also a plague that broke out and God brought a judgment on the people of Israel and it is recorded in the Bible that 24,000 people died in the plague. Now, there are other distinctions in the midst of the similarities, including how Moses uh, brought forth water for the people on the rock. In the first place, in Exodus, he was, he, he was to strike the rock and water would come forth. In the second incident, he wasn't supposed to strike the rock. He was supposed to speak to the rock and water would have come out from the rock. But of course, Moses struck it a second time and disqualified himself from entering the promised land. Now, in both books, there were censuses that were taken. And in these censuses, of course, there was a huge difference because the people that were accounted for in the census were completely different. It was a generation that came out from Egypt and there was a generation, different generation that is now going into the promised land. Now, why these similarities? Why is that these uh, similar events? And more importantly, the question to ask is, why these differences in the midst of the similarities? They are not merely repetition of events, but God is trying to speak something to us. So I want to point out the reason for these differences. The first is this. It is a coming out versus a going in. Exodus was about a people escaping slavery, but Numbers is about the people entering into destiny. One was about deliverance, the other is about possessing. Let me illustrate for us what this difference is. I don't know if you've ever watched movies and you watch these movies about calamities, you know, and there is an earthquake that strikes or there's a tsunami that's coming, you know, or there's some kind of alien invasion. And what happens is that you see these people fleeing away from the place of the disaster. Now, when you see people running for their lives, let me tell you this, there, there is no coordination, there is no order, there is no system, there is no structure. It's every man for themselves or every person for themselves. They are running for their lives. But on the other hand, if you ever watch a team or you know, a group endeavor that is dead and they're seeking to accomplish something together, or it's about a group of people coming, up to, uh, coming together for a common cause, then the scenario becomes quite different. The people suddenly are very coordinated. They know their place. They know their roles. They do what is their part. Now, that's the difference between Exodus and Numbers. One is an escape where there is no structure, there's no form, the people are just getting out. But now the nation of Israel is going in and it's really very different. Israel had to be a lot more organized. In fact, in the book of Numbers, in the first couple of chapters, what we see is we see the order that has been now established in the nation. We are told that there are three tribes you know, to the north, three tribes to the east, three tribes to the west, three tribes to the south. And every tribe, they know exactly what their place. The nation is now structured and they have a system and, uh, of law and politics you know, and hygiene and so on and so forth. You see, when God is bringing us out from something, His expectation of us is quite different than when He's about to bring us into something. The state that we are in when we are being delivered is not the same as when we are about to possess or enter into our destinies. What is required is different. And this is the important difference between the two books, between the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. 
And this is the distinction that we must bear in mind when we read these two books. And that's why there is a difference in the outcome of the same of similar events. Now, what is even more important for us to understand is uh, the application. You know, it is important for us to know, you know, what is the stage or what is the season in which we are in individually? Are we in an exodus season or exodus moment? Or are we in a numbers moment where God is about to bring us into something? Is God taking us out of something? Or is God in a season, are we in a season where God is bringing us into something? You see, there are times where we have gotten into situations and God has sent a miracle to deliver us from those difficult situations, from those entanglements. We pray, we cry out, and you know, God miraculously sets, us, miraculously sets us free. But there are other times where a miracle is not forthcoming, even though the situation that we are in might be quite similar. You see, in such an instance, it is important for us to realize what is the process that we are going through. Are we coming out of something, or is God bringing us into something? When we are coming out from something, God will oftentimes send us the miracles that we need to deliver us. And when He's in the process of bringing us into something, then the miracles is not what we need. Instead, what He needs to, to do in our lives is to produce a situation in us to draw out strength, to draw out faith, to draw out perseverance, to pass the test that He set before us, to put other qualities that we need in order for us to enter into the promised land that God has for us. Now, here's something of an example as we bring this part or point to a close. If you think about this, the apostles, they've all gone through a lot of difficult situations. Take, for example, Peter. Peter was in prison in the book of Acts. And when he was in prison, it's because, you know, they had killed James, they saw that it pleased the people, so they arrested Peter and put him in prison, and they did intend to execute Peter. But in the night, what happened is the Lord came and the Lord delivered Peter. Amen? He opened the doors of the gates, he blinded the, Peter, the guards, and Peter just walked out of prison and came back to the believers, and that was a miracle of deliverance. But you know, much later on in the book of Acts, you come across Paul, and we are told this, that the prophet tells Paul, hey, you are going to be in prison. And yet Paul willingly subjected himself to prison. And then he went to Jerusalem and there he was arrested and he went through this whole process because he understood that it wasn't about the prison. God was going to bring Paul to Rome to be a witness for the Lord in the city of Rome. And so the process of imprisonment, there was shipwrecked, there were ambushes, there were dangers every day and it took a long time for Paul to make his way from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. There was no miracle, there was no deliverance out of imprisonment. So on the one hand, one was delivered miraculously but on the other, you know, it was a, 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 a process of perseverance until he could enter into what God has promised him that he would stand in Rome to bear witness of Christ. Now, so, it's, so let us consider, are we being chased by the enemy? Because if we are and God is drawing and delivering us out of something, then God will send the miracles. But when we are invading the enemy's territory, then God expects courage, He expects faith from us, and He expects for us to trust Him and to be strong. Amen. Now, the second difference here is this, that one is an external problem versus the other, which is an internal problem. You see, in the book of Exodus, the people encountered practical problems. They needed water, they needed food, and they encountered enemies and they needed help. Now, these were external problems, and when we have external problems, God shows up with a miracle. 
However, in numbers, it wasn't problematic situations that were confronting the people, but instead, the people themselves were the problem. You see, once the covenant was given, once they became God's people and God had shown them His ability to take care of them, God was, what God was uh, expecting them to behave differently. You know, that when you are a new Christian and when you are a mature Christian of 10 years, let me tell you this, God's expectation is quite different. You know, with the children of Israel, God had proven His ability to look after them. After all, He parted the Red Sea, He brought forth food and water for them, He sheltered them with a cloud by day, and He warmed them with fire by night. And despite all these things, they kept complaining and complaining and complaining. It is clear then that the circumstances were no longer the problem, but the people themselves were now the issue and the problem. So let's look at Numbers 11 again, which we mentioned uh, briefly uh, earlier. The people were complaining about food and, you know, Moses, and, and this was not a new problem, isn't it? I mean, think about this. Moses has experienced this pe uh, before, the people complaining about food. In fact, in the book of Exodus, when the people complained about food, Moses just came to God and God provided manna and quail uh, for the people. In fact, in Exodus chapter 16, you know, the, the Moses that we see is quite different. He appeared cool, composed. You know, he simply declared what God was going to do. He's going to bring food and give to all the people. But when you come to the book of Numbers, uh, we, has, we see a very different Moses. We see Moses' you know, whole expression completely change. In Numbers 11, verse 11 to 12, let me read uh, Moses' response to you, okay? And it's very fascinating. Moses says this in verse 11. He says, Why have you afflicted your servant? He's saying to God, He says, Why are you afflicting me? Why are you causing me so much tr uh, trouble? And he asks God, Why have I not found favor in your sight? It's like saying to God, God, you don't like me, is it? You don't, you know, what is this thing? Why do you keep doing this, you know? And then he says, And you have laid the burden of all these people on me. He says, did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a gardener carries a nursing child? And he's basically saying, God, this is your problem. It's not my problem. And then he closes out with this little line. He says, to the land which you saw to their fathers. I want you to notice this. He says, that to their, you know, you saw, you saw to their fathers, you know. You know, I've got three boys, you know, and when the boys do well, oftentimes I say to my wife, Wendy, I say, hey, my boys, you know. But when they do bad and they misbehave, I'll go to my wife and say, wow, your boys, you know. And that's what Moses is doing here, you know. He says, your people, these are yours, you know. And that's what he's, he's saying. So you could see, you can literally feel that Moses has been reduced to absolute despair. The frustration is all over what Moses is saying. And this is such a complete different Moses from Exodus uh, 16, isn't it? And now, I want to say this, that it wasn't that Moses didn't have faith anymore. It wasn't that Moses had become, had become a lesser man than he was in the book of Exodus. It wasn't as though that he had retrograded in his uh, walk with God. What despaired Moses was that after all this time, after all these years, after witnessing all that God has done for them, the people just had not changed. After seeing all the years of faithfulness and the ability of God to provide for them, they still complained. They were still murmuring about the food. You know, and when they should have been transformed, they remain unchanged and they have made no progress in their journey with God. And this is what brought despair to Moses. Paul said in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
you need someone to teach you again. You see, may not be for us that, you know, after 10 years, 5 years as a believer, we're still like newborn Christians. Amen? God expects us to grow up, to mature. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus walked on water and He calmed the seas. And the commentary about this miracle is this. In Mark 6, it says this, For they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. You see, Jesus didn't just walk on water to display His power. Jesus didn't just walk on water just to show off and tell people that He could walk on water. The reason for the walking of water miracle is because the disciples didn't understand the miracle from before. They failed to understand the miracle of the loaves and the multiplication of the food. And so they needed a second miracle to open their hearts to faith. You see, that's what the thing is. The miracle fulfilled the physical needs of the people. It met the needs of the people, but it failed to penetrate into the hearts of the disciples to create faith and trust in the Lord. That's the issue. That's the intention. You see, God wants to send miracles, but let me tell you this, that miracles on the one hand is to meet a need that we have, but more than that, it is to show us that Jesus is Lord, that He's able and to create faith and character and to develop our knowledge of who the Lord is. And that is more important. Amen? God wants to send miracles, but don't just enjoy the miracle. Understand the miracles that God is sending to us. Amen? Now, the third difference is a, you know, is a, a difference between a slavery mentality versus a freedom mentality. Now, this might sound really wrong, but I think that it is true, and I believe it to be true, that it is easier to be a slave than it is to be a freed person. You see, slaves are given tasks to do, which they only need complete. They don't need to think about the action that is given to them to complete. They don't have to think about the consequences. They don't have to think, they don't have to take responsibility. They just need to be told what to do and then they will go do it. Now, I want to, you know, tell some um, uh, analogy from my army, army days, okay? Because, you know, most of us who in Singapore, we have uh, been conscripted in, in, in the army, serve our national service. You know, and there are some things that we all uh, recognize, and we always say it's easier to be a soldier than to be a commander, isn't that right? You know, because a soldier is only concerned about what the task that is given to him to do. I remember, you know, as an officer, when we went out for missions or when we went for, you know, exercises, you know, and you boarded the, the, the tree tunnels, you know, the, the troops, all they wanted to know is this. Where is the tree tunnel dropping us off? And how far to the objective do we have to walk? If you tell them, oh, it's only 800 meters, then the soldiers are saying, wow, good exercise, very good, sir, very good, you know? But if you tell them it's a five-kilometer hike through the jungle to come to the form-up point before you assault the objective, then they'll, they'll start cursing and swearing and say, wow, what a terrible exercise. Why must we walk so long? Why can't the vehicle drop us nearer? You see, the troops are only interested in how much they have to walk. And then when they reach the objectives, it's just to look at the enemies in front and to shoot, Right? But the commanders have to do a completely different set of things. They have to keep in mind the contingencies. There are many other factors they have to consider. They have to navigate through, you know, from, from the start, starting point right to the objective. They have to make sure all the troops arrive, nobody is lost. And after the assault happens, they have to make sure they know that proper tactics that are applied, there's logistical uh, resupply, there are contingencies, they are met. No wonder people prefer the role of being a follower instead of being a leader. Because it's easier to be a follower. It's easier to be a slave. You see, this is true concerning freedom. 
freedom always comes with responsibilities. With freedom comes also the requirement to answer for our actions, right? I mean, you think about the nations who are living under a dictatorship or tyranny. You know, the dictator does whatever he does and no, nobody holds him to account. But in a free democracy, um, leaders and, uh, have to be held accountable by the people. They have to answer for their actions, right? You know, and, and when we embrace freedom, it means letting go of passivity and dependence on the system. It means growing up from being a child to being an adult who thinks about consequences and who plans for the future. Let me say this, freedom demands discipline. Isn't it true? I mean, imagine when you were still in school, you know, in uh, primary school, secondary school, JC, even university. At the start of the school year, what you're given is you're given the curriculum, you're given the modules, you're told what you're supposed to study. At the end of it, there is an exam, and all you need to do is show up every day in class, do your homework. There is a structure that takes you through your educational process. But let me tell you that education doesn't end after you graduate and you stop studying in a formal institution. But education really begins thereafter, right? But when you are free and you don't have to be confined to a structure, let me tell you this, continual growth and education and learning can only happen, you know, if we adopt discipline in our lives. It requires a lot more discipline. Because, you know, you need discipline to wake up on time in the morning. You need discipline to manage your time, your resources. You need discipline to research and to suppress your urge, you know, you know to, for pleasures of the moment, to delay your gratification, to know what is it, to structure your own set of studies that you want to do. Let me tell you this, freedom is a lot more difficult than having something told to you about what to do. Now, it's interesting that, in, in, in a, you know, when it comes to you know, the description of slavery to Pharaoh as well as serving God, the Bible, the Hebrew word that is used to describe it, is the same word and it's the word avoda. And the word avoda literally means hard work. And the reason it's the same word is because serving under slavery and serving uh, under God both requires hard work. There is no difference in that hard work that is needed. But the difference is this, that when you are serving under a human tyrant, the hard work breaks your spirit. It leaves you empty. It leaves you at a place of loss. But when you are serving God, the hard work leads to purpose, to fulfillment, and to satisfaction. No wonder Israel kept looking back at slavery. No wonder they kept looking back at the days where they didn't have to take responsibility. And they looked back at those days with such nostalgia. In Numbers 11 and 5, I'm telling you, they could remember everything about their lives back in slavery. And this is what they said in verse 5. He says, we remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. You see, when we start reminiscing about food, we really start missing the place that we associate with that food. You know, the climax of this Nostalgia, this negative nostalgia appears in Numbers chapter 16, verse 13. During Korah's rebellion, where Dathan and Abiram, you know, led a rebellion to bring Israel back to Egypt. And this is how they describe Egypt. They said Egypt was a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, isn't that sad? Isn't that, you know, uh, you know isn't that um, just the, the, the most uh, 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 tragic thing for them to say? 
I mean, this is the ultimate slave mentality, where the place of slavery replaces our vision of the place of freedom. Because when, when God came and freed the children of Israel out of Egypt, He painted for them a vision of the destination He was going to bring them to. And the word that was used, the phrase that was, described, that was used to describe this place is a land flowing with milk and honey. But now the children of Israel, they so loved slavery, they took this phrase to describe the place of hardship and affliction and slavery from which they came out from. I want to say this, we must never ever say that our lives before Christ is better than our lives after Christ. Amen? We must never put our hands to the plow and look back and say, hey, the days of slavery, you know, of being a non-Christian is better than the days that we are in now. That is the ultimate slave mentality. You see, God wants to take us out from slavery to freedom because true freedom is a long and hard road and many people prefer to stay in a mental state of slavery. Let me tell you this, in Cornerstone sometimes it's so hard for us to get people to rise up to become cell leaders. And why is that so? It's because people love to be a slave. People prefer to be led. Everyone says, no, 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 I don't want to be a cell leader. It's so difficult. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. You know why? That's a slave mentality. That is when we say to people, hey, I'd rather be led. I, rather, I don't want the responsibility of being a free person, of walking in the freedom that God has given to us. Because freedom requires hard work. It requires discipline. And it requires for us to take on responsibilities. Amen. May we not stay in a place of wanting to be slaves, but may we move on to the freedom that God has called us to. Finally, you know, the difference is that there is an escape. There, there is a difference of an escape versus a wilderness. Now, the comparison of these two books, of course, is found in their names as well. And I mentioned at the start of this message that the book of uh, Exodus, you know, uh, means, a, you know, the word Exodus itself means a mass depa departure of people. In this case, it was a departure of people that was escaping or being delivered out from slavery. Now, the book of Numbers, of course, is called uh, Bemidbar in the Hebrew, and that means in the wilderness, okay? And so it's used to describe the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. Now, I, let, me, let me say this to all of us Christians. A wilderness is a very significant spiritual place that God, want, that God will bring us through in all our journeys with Him. Amen? Not, none of us as believers can escape this. All of us must go through seasons in our lives where we find ourselves in a spiritual wilderness. And you know, and, and all we need to do is to understand what God was doing for Israel during their wilderness season to get some idea of what God wants to accomplish in us. For one thing, the wilderness is a place that is dry, lonely, and it often seems to be bereft of life. And yet it is in such a place where we learn our dependence upon God. It is in such a place where we learn to dig deep in our walk with God and to trust Him. And we learn to draw life from the Lord and not life from our surroundings. You know, it cannot be understated how important the wilderness is and how it represents a place where we are stripped of the things that are on the external, things that distract us, things that entertain us, things that are a scaffolding or a crutch for us in our lives. It is a place that is bland. It is a place that looks just like the next place. I mean, there's, it's mundane, it's routine, it's boring. But it is in these seasons that God wants to develop our spiritual lives. Amen? As in the natural, so is, this, is it in the spiritual. These situations about God stripping things away from our lives and bringing us to a place of dependence upon Him. But the place of the wilderness is also a place of transition. 
You know, when we are in a familiar place, we tend not to change because we are comfortable. And, you know, we get settled down and we conform. It's interesting that when God called Abraham out, he said these things in Genesis 12 verse 1. He said to Abraham, Come out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to the land I will show you. Now, three things he was called out from. He was called out from his country, from his culture, as well as from his kin. And these are the three primary areas of familiarity that prevents us from making changes in our lives. But when we, have, we break out of these three areas, when we are placed in an environment where these three things are not there, then the conformity is broken and God can begin to instill a new system and to instill a new way into our lives. So every time God wants to do something fresh in us, He needs to bring us into a transitional place. And this is what the wilderness is for. You know, anthropologists call this a liminal space. And it is a place where we find ourselves, you know, with things that are un unfamiliar. Our source of provision is different. It's unfamiliar ground that we have to walk through and traverse through. And God begins to instill new things. He teaches us new things. Let me say this. The liminal space or the transitional space is not a place of permanence. We are not called to stay in the wilderness. Instead, it is a place of preparation for something greater that God has for us. You see, Exodus is about escaping. But when you are in a wilderness, look at it not with fear, look at it not with disgust, look at it not with a sense of resignment, but look at it with a sense of hope because the wilderness always leads to the future that God has for you. It's temporary. It's for a moment. It's liminal. It's transitional. Something better is coming your way. Now, these are the distinctions and the differences between Exodus and Numbers. Now, in these differences, what we really see is we see that how God wants to, you know, um, take us from one place out into a new place that He has for us. And He wants to make changes in our lives as He does that because He's about to bring us into something greater than He has for us. Church, I pray that this message blesses you. I pray, oh God, that the Lord will, will, will speak to us uh, through this message. And I, you know, if we are still in a, in a state of a slave mentality, let me tell you this, it's time to grow up, amen? It's time to get out of that and, and, and embrace responsibility, embrace freedom. Freedom comes with responsibility, amen? You know, and, and not just that, but it's also time to grow up. You know, it's time for us to know that, hey, and look back and see that, hey, God has been faithful, He's been able to look after us. And it's time for us to stop complaining and murmuring but to see the character of strength, courage, resilience being established in our lives that God wants to put in every one of us. Amen? So church, I pray that you will, you will just look at the Word of God in a fresh light as you look at the book of Numbers as well as the book of Exodus. And may the Holy Spirit speak to every one of us. Amen? Let's pray, shall we? Our dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for the Word that is preached uh, this weekend. And Lord, I've done what is my part to do. And I just ask you, by your Holy Spirit to do only what your Holy Spirit can do, Lord. You'll take this word, you'll make it applicable, you'll make it specific, Lord, to every person that hears this message, Lord. I pray that whatever it is that is the need that is in people's lives, if they're in a place of exodus and they need a miracle, in the name of Jesus, I release the miracles that they need to them right now. Miracles of provision, miracles of strength, miracles of deliverance, miracles of healing, Lord. Whatever it might be that they need, Lord. Miracles where you would speak to them about the situation and, uh, that they're going through right now in their lives, Lord. I pray, O oh God, that you will minister to them because you are taking them out, Lord. 
But Father, I pray also for many of us who are in a place where we are going in, Lord, that we would grow up, we would abandon the slave mentality, but we embrace a freedom mentality. We'll know that we're in a transitional place and you're developing us, oh God. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have such great plans, such wonderful plans for our lives, Lord. Bless this time, and I just speak your blessings, Lord, over your people, your congregation, the blessings of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you, abide with you now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen. Oh, praise the Lord. Thank you for joining us this weekend. Have a blessed week. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.